praise the Lord, church, for all that God's doing in the life of our church. Amen. 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 It's amazing. It was just January 1st. My Lord, have mercy. Time is moving. Somebody says time is moving. Time is moving. I want to give a reminder as well. Our Good Friday services will be this Friday online. If you come here, it'll just be you and the Lord. Um, So join us online for that. And don't forget to stop by and get your uh, boxes uh, for communion. So communion boxes, as you leave out, you'll see them in the lobby. Just grab one um, or enough for your family as you take part in the Lord's table for Good Friday service. I am fired up this morning. Um, I love opening up God's word and feeding the flock. I count it a joy to know that I have nothing to say that'll change anybody's life. Hello, lights. But God has something to say. God has something to say. Mark chapter 11, meet me in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 will be our spiritual entree this morning as we dive in to see what God has for us. Mark chapter 11, I will cross-reference the same account by Matthew, which is Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Just some little nuggets there that kind of correlates and, and, and adds some more detail that Mark doesn't do. But Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11 will be our main uh, course of meal today, and I'm excited to see what God's going to do as I'm fired up to unpack what he has given me in the study time to, to feed the flock. Let us pray. Father, we bless you today. We thank you today. Uh, what a sweet spirit of worship it's been already as we have sung to you, as we learn about various upcoming uh, community uh, groups and studies and all the things that just plunge us into loving each other and loving you. Lord, we pray that you will bless our efforts. But Lord, we pray right now that as we sit under your voice, as we sit under your scripture, that it would speak. May your passage drive the message. May you illumine. May you open the hearts. May you confront us. May you get up in our space, in our grill, and challenge us, Lord, to be all that you've called us to be. And may we walk out of here deeper worshipers, fervent worshipers, passionate worshipers, Worshippers of Jesus Christ, Lord, we love you, we honor you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think it's a safe assumption that many of us, or even most of us, um, have experienced that moment where that moment has arrived, that, that moment has arrived. Maybe it's the birth of a child, maybe it's a graduation, uh, maybe it's a financial goal, or the purchasing of a house, or you fill in the blank. Those moments are in some ways surreal. Wow, it's here, right? Um, I remember going to Moody Bible Institute and I thought um, being a senior was so far away, you know, starting as a freshman again, you know, in college. And I'm like, man, it seems so far. But then each year goes by. How many of us know that college can fly by? I remember thinking it seems so far, but that moment arrived. And I remember the very words my father would say to me as I approached my last semester at Moody. He was like, you ain't coming home, son. Get a job in Jesus' name. <laughs> my dad said, I, I, I didn't raise a boomerang because boomerangs return back. He says, I've raised an arrow. And so the moment had arrived. Hello, somebody. But we've all have been there. We've all have been there where that moment has everything that you've planned, you prayed for, you've pursued, has, has, has now come to fruition, so to speak. I, I want you to think about that 
as we come to the triumphal entry, as we think about Palm Sunday, this is the crescendo of the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the entrance into Holy Week. We don't talk about holiness too, too much nowadays. We, we're too busy trying to be somebody's friend. But what he set his heart to do is now coming to fruition. The plan of God, the plan of God and working in human history. All those Old Testament stories weren't just random stories. They were pointing towards a hill called Calvary. You got to understand that this Holy Week, according to Matthew's account, denotes about eight chapters. About eight chapters is given solely to Holy Week. I want you to feel the tension here because Palm Sunday, during this Holy Week, the first day of Holy Week, my research indicates about one to, two, get this, one to two million people would migrate their way to Jerusalem. Now, I've been to Jerusalem a few times, and it is an unimpressive, tiny little small place. And I remember standing there on the Mount of Olives, and I'm thinking, I'm talking to my dad, I'm like, how do they fit all these people up in here? So I want you to understand, this isn't some scattered crowd here. The scene of the triumphal entry it's within the context of a crowd, conservatively one to two million, two million people. As we come to the triumphal entry in our text in Mark, this, this story is, has about three movements, has three movements. We'll make some application along the way, but it has at least three movements here. The first movement is Jesus prepares his entrance. Jesus prepares his entrance. Look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 11. It says that now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives literally is right on the east side of the temple. You got the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley. Then there you have the Temple Mount. It's everything is right on top of it. So I want you to feel this. Everything is close. It's close quarters. It's a crowded place. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, watch this, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Now, don't get lost in the weeds. There's one word that unpacks or summarizes, rather, verses 1 through 3. It's the word Lord. The word Lord means master. That Jesus is master of the harvest. But most importantly, and in context, he's master of events. That what transpires in this Holy Week, there's nothing random. Jesus is not surprised because what we see here is a profound theological point that there's nothing in your life and in my life that is outside the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God simply means that God runs it all. 
God's not looking at your life and in my life and taking, you know, Maylocks over our situation. He's not looking at the chaos or the political landscape of this world or the troubles and crimes in every city. He's not wondering, how am I going to fix America's problem? He is Lord. And so there's nothing in your life and in my life that knocks him off his square. And in fact, my God, he reigns and rules with his feet up. He's not pacing, he's not sweating. And the theological point here is this, Jesus is in complete control. So when he says, y'all go there, you're going to see what's going to happen. And he also knows all things. So you tell them that the Lord has need of it. Matthew gives a nugget here in Matthew 21, verse 4 and 5. We learn that this took place to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, that's Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He says, your king is coming to you. Now, this is a thousand years or so before this triumphal entry. Your king is coming to you. This is interesting. In that culture and time, when kings came into town, most of the time they came riding on horses because that signified victory. That signified pomp and circumstance. Look at me. I'm too sexy for my shirt. But if a king wanted to come, God help me, he wanted to come in peace, he would come riding on a donkey. Don't water ski through scripture. Learn to ask the text question. Why does Jesus choose to ride on a donkey? Because he's trying to illustrate that my first coming is to offer peace. He's humble. You're talking about God incarnate is humble. He did not come the way the Jews wanted him to come. Yeah, set Rome straight, Jesus. No, he came humble, mounted on a donkey. So Jesus sends the two disciples to go, and they find it the way Jesus said it was. They found everything as they said it was. They, they grab the donkey. They say, hey, this is what the Lord said. They get the donkey. They put a cloak on it. And now Jesus Christ prepares his entrance into Jerusalem. One of my favorite gospel artists is Fred Hammond. If you don't know who Fred Hammond is, don't you die and go to heaven without first listening to Fred Hammond. Much of the praise and worship music today, he is actually the architect of the praise and worship structure. If you study your gospel music, you study urban praise, he is the architect of it. God used him in mighty ways. Classic album, uh, The Inner Court, The Spirit of David, a classic work. Uh, Pages of Life, another classic work. One of my favorite songs by Fred Hammond, among many, is a song called, He is Not Just a Man. Listen to these lyrics. The greatest gift to man from the Father would change us all in ways we've never seen. Yet his first moments were in a manger, and soon every living thing would call him king. Yes, they would. Though we didn't know it then, we soon would understand that his life would reveal God's perfect plan. Here's the chorus. He is not just a man. He is God. 
And he is not just a baby, he is king. No, he is not just a lamb, but the lion of Judah, savior and ruler of all. We need to behold him. He is not equal to Joseph Smith. He's not equal to Mary. He's not equal to Muhammad. He is preeminent. He is supreme. If you're offended by that, don't get mad at me. I'm just speaking biblical truth. And I don't apologize for truth. He's in a class all by himself. He is not the man upstairs. He is not your bosom buddy. He's holy. The God who spoke and the worlds were formed, stepped into time in the person of Jesus Christ and rode on a donkey. He is not just a man. So he prepares his entrance, but now Jesus enters Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. This is where we get Palm Sunday from. It's a beautiful scene. In fact, you can actually walk the traditional route of, 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 of the triumphal entry right down the Mount of Olives. Very steep, but it's just a beautiful, uh, surreal, and holy moment. And so when they are laying the palms down, it's a picture of submission. It's a picture of victory. But, oh, notice something here. The first part of verse 9, I was kind of struck by this. It says, and those that went before him and those who followed. Let me read that again. Those who went before him and those who followed. Now, normally I would not do this, but I, but I believe I have liberty to do this. Um, when I preach, I like you to see everything in the text. I don't want you ever walking away thinking, what was he talking about? But I need to make some clarity here because not everyone in this crowd is for Jesus. Read the text in light of the, of, the, of the context, in light of the book, in light of the Gospels. When you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you'll come, you'll come away real quickly knowing that there are at least four types of people in the crowd. At least four. And may I even dare say these four are here right now this morning and in any church across this nation and world. There are always at least four types of people in the crowd. First of all, you got the disciples, right? Uh, you realize I'm not just talking about the 12 disciples. He actually had other followers as well. These are people that wanted to know Jesus, wanted to walk with Jesus, wanted to commune with Jesus, wanted to um, be all that they could be for Jesus. They wanted to learn from him. That's the essence of what discipleship is. So you have the disciples, but number two in the crowd, you have the spectators. These are the people that are, you know, they're in the crowd, they're kind of watching, they're on the sidelines, you know, you know, we're here, we're, we're just trying to see and observe. I'm not interested in making commitment to Jesus, but I'm just around. There's some spectators here today. Being a spectator doesn't make me a Christian no more than me standing in my garage makes me a car. 
Hell will have many parking spaces for people who were spectators in church. And unfortunately, in the crowds, there are people who are disciples, yes, but there are people who are spectators. I don't want no commitment to Jesus. Are you kidding me? I'm just here to watch. Okay. Third type of people in the audience is the emotionally driven people. Nothing wrong with our emotions, but our emotions are good passengers, but they're horrible drivers. And if I'm led by my feelings and I'm led by my emotions, I'll go whichever way the wind blows. But you have people like that in church who ride the high of emotion rather than authentic commitment to the Savior. Another type of people in the crowd, and you actually see this more and more in the life and ministry of Jesus, especially in Holy Week, is the stiff-necked religious people. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to the, the theology school. I went to seminary, you know. I, I knew the Old Testament like the back of my hand. I memorized so many portions of Scripture, and Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. How in the world do you dedicate your life to studying Scripture, but yet you miss Jesus? And far too often, so many people are more committed to knowing the right doctrine, but have horrible application. And the people that gave Jesus the hardest time were the religious church folk. Very religious, but had no relationship with God. That is possible, by the way. That you can punch the clock of religion every Sunday morning, but have no intimacy with the Father that woke you up this morning. And so you see, I don't want you to read what I'm about to read next and think that everybody is for Jesus. And so we need to evaluate ourselves. Which one of these am I? But nevertheless, after making that little observation, the crowds that went before and those who followed, look at this. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Whether they're for him or against him, they take a page out of Psalms. Interesting. Hosanna means please save. Literally it means save us now. In fact, they took it from Psalm 118 verses 19 to 26. Now this is amazing. This is a Psalm of David. This is a Psalm of David. And as I read these verses to you, I want you to picture Jesus Christ on a donkey descending down the Mount of Olives, up the Temple Mount, making his way. Listen to these words. Psalm 118, verses 19 and 26. David says, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Here it is. Save us, we pray. Oh Lord, oh Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, the triumphal entry, Jesus Christ, is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. 
This is why this is no ordinary book. Because what was spoken and penned by the mouth of David has now found its fulfillment in Mark 11. Do you see the beauty of Scripture? Are you in awe of the wonder that our God knows exactly what he's doing? That he fulfills every word that is spoken of him. As I thought about this, the Holy Spirit really convicted me with this question that he wants me to ask you. And the question I'm going to ask you is a weighty question. And it's a question that every last person must answer. And the question is simply this. What are we going to do with Jesus? Our answer to that question has eternal implications. Please hear me. At 11.16 a.m., eternity is hanging in balance. And right now at 11, now 11.17 a.m., we're closer to an appointment with God than where we were at 10.30 at the beginning of the service. The question I'm asking us is, what are we going to do with Jesus? For some of us, he's a liar. I don't believe him. I don't believe the word he said. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. For others of us, he's a lunatic. He is out of his mind. Please. I think I know better than he does. I've actually heard people say that. By the way, this isn't in my notes. I was doing a, <laughs> thank you, Lord. I was doing a, a Summer in the City project, literally, and I kid you no lie. I'm not telling you what I heard. I tell you what I saw. I'm an eyewitness. Our group was doing evangelism in a park there in Southern California, and we ended up sharing a gospel with this lady. She probably was a homeless lady, and she literally started cussing God, blaspheming his name, right? And we're sitting there just trying to share the love of Christ with her. She starts walking away from us. Cussing God, cussing, blaspheming him. And literally what I saw with my own eyes was a herd of pigeons flew right over her and dropped a load on a sister. I find it interesting, she stopped blaspheming God then. Now which is better, to be uh, showered with pigeon, you fill the blank? Or for God to say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. What are we going to do with Jesus, church? He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. I got to stop here. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I, I got to stop here. I got to stop here and say this. Some of y'all uh, expressed your, your, your condolences for my aunt, my dad's sister. My dad's the last one left. And my aunt, oh, she's having a good day today, spirit-filled, godly woman. When my dad made it to the hospital, her health was failing. My cousin actually took, uh, sent me a couple uh, videos of that moment my dad walked in. And one of the things she kept saying over and over again in that moment, in her frailness, was, I want to go home. I want to go home. In another video was a video of her waving her hands and praising God in the midst of her affliction because she already made her decision that my Savior Jesus is my Lord. 
He's my Lord. Now your answer to that question, what are we going to do with Jesus, has eternal implications. It's better to bow down the knee now than later and then for him to cast us to eternal separation from him. So what are we going to do with him? Jesus prepares his entrance. <laughs> Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The third move is that the city is stirred. The city is stirred. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, Mark has a nice, ties a nice bow on this scene. But again, as I told you, I was going to reference Matthew. Matthew 21, verse 10 and 11 concludes and adds a little detail here. I thought it was very interesting. It says this, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been around a, long, a big crowd, a concert or, or, or an event, I mean, it, the place shakes. Listen, when Jesus shows up, he shakes the place. He stirs up. He breaks up the fallow ground of our callousness. And his very presence demands a verdict. He stirs up and it causes people to ask the question, who is this? Well, they say, well, this is the prophet Jesus. From Nazareth of Galilee. One of the most sobering passages of scripture is found in John 1, 11 and 12, which says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, church, most people, many people don't have a problem with God. But a lot of people have a problem with Jesus. Thus, that's why we got all these world religions out there. People have a problem with Jesus because who he is demands a verdict. It demands a response. What am I going to do with this God, man, this Savior? That is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. I don't know about you, but we need to embrace him. We need to follow him. You know, as we look at the triumphal entry, I got to be honest with you, it's easy to say, okay, what then does this mean for us in 2023, the first Sunday in April? What does this mean? Brendan, I hear what you're saying, but I, I got things going on in my life. I, I just, I need something. What, how does this relate to me? You ask great questions on a Sunday morning. Here's the moral of the story. Here's the message. Here's the big idea of the triumphal entry. Here it is. Very simple. Jesus Christ is here to set me free. Jesus Christ, on that donkey, had a mission to set the captives free. Ah, help me, Lord. The question I want to ask for the remainder of our time is, why is Jesus passionate about freeing me? Why is he passionate about setting me free? Oh, let these three answers bless you. 
The reason why, number one, he's passionate about freeing me is because he loves me. The Bible says that God is love. The human finite mind can't even fully grasp that theological point. He is love. We do loving things, but the essence of God is that he is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, here's my King James, but whosoever believeth, I always feel closer to Jesus when I say believeth. But whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have ever lasting life. Ladies and gentlemen, he's passionate about freeing you and me because he loves us. God loves us too much to leave us in our mess. It was love that mounted on a donkey. It was love that cleansed that temple that holy week. It was love that experienced all type of ridicule and craziness, being accused of all types of stuff by the, those, the folk who should have got it but missed it. It was love that, that stood there at a post as he's getting 39 lashes on his back. It was love that carried that 180-pound cross up Golgotha's hill. It was love that laid down his life and took nine-inch nails to, to his wrists and his feet. It was love that kept him on the cross and not come down. It was love that died. It was love that was buried. It was love that woke up on Sunday morning. So the reason why Jesus is passionate about setting you free is because he loves you too much to leave you where you are. Second reason why he's passionate about freeing me, God help me with this one, is because he willfully takes the blow. Let's work on this. He willfully takes the blow. We don't understand in this, in this thing called time today, this era, we don't understand the weight of what sin does. Just look at this week. Shootings, storms, accidents, tragedies. It all comes back down to the reality that we live in a fallen world and it's because of sin Sin permeates every DNA fiber in our bodies. The very air that we breathe is affected by sin. Creation is moaning and groaning. And that's why there's no such thing as a good person. How can a good person who's affected by sin call themselves good? Think about that. Only God is good. So in Old Testament, the sacrificial system, it had to be a pure sacrifice. And the only sacrifice was only there for or good for one year. That's why John the Baptist would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Old Testament, it can only cover you for a year. But the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, his sacrifice not only covers our sin, but takes away our sin. For therefore, 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 there is no, there's no condemnation for anybody who's in Christ Jesus. So the reason why he's passionate about freedom is because he willfully takes the blow. He took the blow. He took the blow of God's wrath. Because a holy God has to deal and satisfy who he is, which is a God of justice. 
So he died in our place. He took the blow. Now, why would I reject that good news and try to make it myself? The arrogance that we all can possess. So Jesus is passionate about freeing me because he loves me, because he willfully takes the blow. Thirdly and finally, because he is the gateway to knowing God. Because he is the gateway to knowing God. Listen to me, listen to me. There is no knowing God intimately apart from entering through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That ain't PC, but that's Bible. Everybody on this planet has some general revelation. They kind of, they know that there's a God. The only reason why we try to resist it because we suppress it. Romans 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. But there's no such thing as intimately knowing this God unless I first turn from my sin and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. He is not a way, he's the way. He's not a truth, he's the truth. He's not a life, he's the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. Paul would say, in him I live and move and have my being. You want to find purpose. You want to find joy. You want to find satisfaction. You want to be at peace with God. Well, say yes to Jesus. Story is told of a lifeguard who was at his post. His post was at a beach. If you've ever been to a beach, there's a whole lot of people at a beach. It's the peak hour. Lifeguard is minding his own business, you know, just sitting around, kind of just you know, looking and just scanning. And he notices at a distance, he sees a man screaming, crying out for help. This lifeguard, of course, he grabs his equipment. He sprints out there, gets into the water, swims closer and closer. And he sees this man screaming for help. But what caught his eye was... This man wasn't a small brother. He was a big dude. And what made matters worse was this big brother crying out for help is swinging like he's about to knock out Mike Tyson. Help! 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 And the lifeguard's like thinking, I ain't going to help you. We both going to end up in a bad place. So all he did was he drew closer. He drew closer. He let this man who was trying to save himself, he let him get to a point of utter exhaustion to where he had no more fight left. It was at that juncture where this man almost went completely under that the lifeguard stepped in, grabbed this big brother, and saved him. We all are born in this ocean of sin. And what false religion will teach you is you can save yourself. <laughs> Please. For the wages of sin is death. And I wonder if there's anybody here today. Let's just call it for what it is. You're drowning. And the way you know you're drowning is you, you, you're just, you're trying to save yourself. You're trying to, you're trying to do it your way. You're, you're weary. And if we were to see with the eyes of the Spirit, I wonder how many weary, exhausted hearts would be in this place. You're tired. You're trying to stay above the water. 
But oh, the great hound of heaven, Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's drawing closer to you right at this moment. And the way you know he is, is your heart is stirring right now. Maybe the tears are flowing. Don't resist that. Because that's the Holy Spirit pulling you. And God's question for us this morning is, will we stop trying to save ourselves? Will we simply just fall back into the arms of the one who paid the eternal bill? Because Jesus is here. Oh, yes, he is. I sense his joy even now. I sense his presence even now. And he's here to set us free. He's here to break the addiction. He's here to mend the broken heart. He's here to give you life and life abundantly. So the message of the triumphal entry is that his eyes were set on setting you and I free. So the question for us is, will we embrace that freedom? I want to challenge us this week to just sit in awe and wonder of the greatest sacrifice that has ever been given. That's the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord.